I wonder how many of you um, have been reading your subscription of The Church World, the official organ of the Kansas City Council of Churches. You probably don't have this issue, which is dated January 17th, 1930, covered by Quinn Mosier in our illustrious archive room. And our church building is featured on the front cover. How about that? So that was about 90 years ago. Uh, this church, the first sermon given in this church as uh, a people constituted together was given October 6, 1921. Uh, so that's why we're celebrating our 100th year anniversary uh, next week in particular. But I thought you'd give a little teaser. We'd do a little... Um, I say pre-gaming, but that's okay. We can redeem that. Pre-gaming in a fun Christian sense and read what was written about our church 90 years ago. The membership, now this is nine years into our church being founded, the membership now has reached more than 300. The annual budget for the year 1930 is more than 19,000. The average Sunday school attendance is between 250 and 300. And the new building, the same one we're in now, the new building, which will soon be occupied completely, is one of the most complete structures of its kind in Kansas City. Get ready for this. The Warnell Road Baptist Church is the only Baptist church south of 39th Street and west of Harrison within the corporate limits of Kansas City. And by reason of the character of its membership and its unexcelled location is destined to be one of the leading churches not only in Kansas City but in the state of Missouri. A lot of hype for this church 90 years ago. But I wonder if the magazine has it off a bit as far as what makes a church great. The magazine seems to highlight the number of attendees and or members, the location, the prominence of this beautiful building to which I'm very thankful for. I wonder what's at the heart of Jesus for his people, though. What's at the heart of Jesus for his church? That's what the Apostle Paul is trying to get us to understand in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 to 16. And we see that the, the very heart of Jesus for his church is, again, that the church, his people, would know something. And more specifically, in this passage, we see that the heart of Christ for his church is that we would know that Jesus is the conquering gift giver of the church. That we would know that Jesus is the conquering gift giver of his church. Let's read. Follow along with me as I read verses 7. And six to, through 16 of Ephesians chapter 4. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. 
and saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. To mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. By human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather... Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Our sermon has two points for us this morning. Point number one, each one of us has been conquered by Christ. That's verses 7 to 10. Each one of us has been conquered by Christ, verses 7 to 10. Secondly, each one of us has been gifted by Christ, verses 11 to 16. Each one of us has been gifted by Christ. Point number one, Ephesians 7 to 10. Each one of us has been conquered by Christ. Now the apostle is pivoting just slightly from their oneness, as we saw last week, their unity to their differences. Look back, if you will, at verses 4 to 6 of chapter 4. Starting in verse 4, notice the repetition of the word one. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And then, verse 7, he has the phrase, each one of us. This is the eighth one, and it's a grace that was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Verse 7 has this conjunction, but. Now, he's talking about unity. He's talking about sameness. We have the same Lord, same baptism, same God and Father of all. All these same, then he says, but. And now he's going to emphasize their sameness. While he emphasized their sameness in the preceding verses, he's going to emphasize their differences. While at the same time, continuing to emphasize their oneness. But before he gets to do that, before he gets at the sameness and the differences, he goes to an Old Testament passage. He reaches back to Psalm 68 in order to prove his point. 
So he's, he's saying this in a sense. Let me try to paraphrase what he's saying. He says, you're united and your unity in Christ has gifted you according to his grace with different varieties of gifts. And let me show you how this is in accord with God's actions in the past and in accord with the Messiah, who we all know now the Messiah is to be Jesus of Nazareth. Do you get that? That's kind of what he's going. This might be one of the trickiest passages, small passages, in all the New Testament. So, so always stay with me, church, but, but really just kind of turn it on right now if you, if you don't mind. So you're the same and you have differences, just like Psalm 68 verse 18 says. It's kind of what he's saying. So Psalm 68 verse 18 the one that uh, part of the, the portion of text that Daniel led earlier and, and led us through a prayer of confession says this. Pay careful attention to the words of Psalm 68, 18. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious that the Lord God may dwell, may dwell there. Now listen carefully how he cites it in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, therefore it says... When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. What word does he alter? Did anyone catch that? It's okay to shout it out. I'll read it again. Who said it? Chris, good. You've got your thinking cap on this morning, brother. Yes, he said gave. So... He received gifts in Psalm 68, verse 18. And now in chapter, in, in chapter 4 of Ephesians, he says he gave gifts. So in order to understand scripture, it's best to read it in its context, right? You, you must read it in its context. So Psalm 68, the first part of Psalm 68, verses 1 to 19, is celebrating God's past victories. And then in Psalm 68, verse 20 and following, it's speaking of God's future victories, so the apostle knowing this, the apostle doing what Psalm 1 says, meditating on the law of the Lord day and night, he's looking at portions of scripture, particularly Numbers chapter 6, or chapters 8, 16 and 18. And now he's writing this, having meditated on the book of Numbers and The psalmist is celebrating what God has done. And now Paul takes it, having, since Christ has already come, and now Paul is using it in order to show that this is all in accord with God's character and God's purposes. So, let me keep trying to explain this. Because I've spent many hours in my own mind explaining it. And very few hours trying to explain it to other people. Paul is taking an analogy of the text. That's totally fine to do. He's not twisting scripture at all. And he's saying that now that the crisis come, crisis come, and he's ca- taken captive certain people, and now he gives those certain people back to his church so that the presence of God may dwell there. God is after dwelling with his people. And if his people... Do not trust in him, then his presence no longer dwells with his people. So, again, stay with me. So, Second Chronicles gets at this. 
Solomon is, is praying and, and receiving words from the Lord. And he's praying and he says, the Lord says to him, if you turn aside and forsake my statutes and my commandments that I have set before you, and if you go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will pluck you up from my land that I have given you. And this house that I have consecrated for my name, that is the temple where God's spirit dwells, I will cast out of my sight and I will make it a proverb and a byword among the peoples. God wants to dwell with his people. And if his people don't trust him, then he will not dwell in the temple. That's what he says there in 2 Chronicles. So what's Numbers? Why did I mention Numbers? Again, stay with me here. Numbers is the fourth book of the Bible, which really is all contained in one book called the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. In Numbers chapter 18, chapters 18, 16, and 18, God takes a people called the Levites from among the Israelites, and they're taken out of the sons of Israel. And then what he does, he gives them back to Israel as a gift. Over lunch or sometime this evening, go and read uh, portions, particularly Numbers 8, but also Numbers 16 and 18, to get this idea of God taking from among the people of Israel and then consecrating them as a gift to the people of Israel. This is in line with God's character. He often takes and gives gifts that is people back to his people. So the very end of Isaiah 66 gets at the same idea. The very end of the book of Isaiah says this, They shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord, on horses and in chariots and in litters and on mules and on camels to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord. Just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of Yahweh, and some of them also I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. God is in the business of taking people, reforming them, changing them, giving them something new, and then giving them as gifts back to his people. That's what he did with the Levites. That's what Psalm 68 is celebrating. And that, now that Jesus has come, that's what Paul is referring to in Ephesians chapter 4. So the question becomes then, how did the Messiah eventually take captive people for himself? And that's what Paul begins to answer here. Look down the text in verses 8 and following, 8 and 9. He descended into the earth from his father's side. You see the, the logic Paul is using? And if he ascended, then of course he must have descended as well. It makes no sense for someone to ascend if they did not first descend. And he did this. He descended from the heaven to earth, taking on flesh. That's what John says. The word became flesh and the word what? Dwelled among us. God dwelling with his people. And the point here is he's getting at is that all of us who are in Christ, all of us who are part of Christ's church have been taken captive by Christ. And that Christ in his conquering on the cross and in his purchasing power has gifted his church with those who used to be his enemies, but now he uses it as his vessels for his purposes. If that's still hard to follow, hey, you're not alone. That took me a while to get, and I don't even know how well I explained that. But I have a couple papers that are pretty short that would might maybe help you understand that even more. The, the big point is this, church. Is that Christ has come 
He has descended from his throne. He has purchased people by his blood, taken them for his purposes, his former enemies. And now he gives them as gifts back to his church. Paul is saying that's just what happened in numbers with the Levites. That's just what Paul, uh, the psalmist is talking about in Psalm 68. You see, each one of us was held captive by Satan. And like God leading his people out of the slavery of the Egyptians, so Jesus has led us out of our enslavement of sin. When, we, when he purchased us from the kingdom of Satan, where we were slaves of sin, and how has made us to live and to thrive in his own kingdom, where we are called no longer slaves of sin, but slaves of righteousness. This is the work of the Lord. And what does this have to do with unity? Paul's saying, each of us have now been rescued by Christ. So church, look around. Awkwardly look to your left, to your right, behind you, in front of you. Good. Great. You can do a lot of good things with some awkwardness. He's saying that each one of you were enemies of Christ. Each one of you. And then in Christ's kindness and his mercy, he came and he ransomed all of you who are in Christ. Kind of like last week, right? We said at the foot of the cross, the playing field is, is leveled. How can you at the foot of the cross look at your brother and sister and judge them? The foot of the cross, we are leveled Understanding that we were all haters of God, we've all been reconciled. That also makes us unified. So each one of us, the person you just looked at, has this in common. We all hated God. Each one of us walked in sexual immorality. We all walked in impurity. Each one of us was given over to our passions, our feelings, led our decisions. We all walked in evil desires. Each one of us coveted. Each one of us were idolaters. And on account of those sins and a multitude of other sins, each one of us had the wrath of God coming for us. We walked in sin. We lived in sin. We loved our sin. And our pathway was a lifetime of increasing in sin. Each one of us went on a road. Each one of us was hostile in our minds toward God. And we had no hope of getting out because we were all enslaved. We were held in captivity by Satan and by our own flesh and by the ways of this world. And we knew no different. Each one of us has the same basic story. We are children of wrath. And each one of us, by God's grace and his grace alone, were rescued from that wrath. Each one of us were adopted by God. Each one of us has the same father. Each one of us has died to sin and now lives in Christ. Each one of us has the same basic story of redemption. 
We have been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, what does that do for Christian unity? And again, it levels the playing field. It says, praise God that I was on a path of destruction and God, by his mercy, he came and he rescued me. And that same thing happened to my brother. That same thing happened to my sister. So in a sense, Andrea Atkins has the same story as I do. Emily Stahl has the same story as me. Art Gilbert, the same story. Madison Mosier, the same story. We all have the same story. We were held captive by the enemy. And Christ came when we didn't deserve it, when we didn't even want it. He came and he rescued us. And now he's taken us captive. And now, in point number two, we see that each one of us has been gifted by Christ. Point two, verses 11 to 16. Each one of us has been gifted by Christ. Look at verse 11. So there's that idea of gifting, right? He, he, he took the Levites for himself among the people of Israel. He gave them back to Israel so that they could establish the priesthood, and be mediators. And now God is saying, I've taken rebellious people. I've made them for myself. And he gave some as apostles and prophets. Some as evangelists and some as shepherds and teachers. And we'll get to the function of all those now. So he starts with apostles. Apostles are those who specifically have been sent out by Jesus. Those who have seen Jesus and have been sent out. So we we have the the 12 apostles and we have mainly the apostle Paul. Uh, They have authority And they know they have authority because it's been commissioned by Jesus. And Paul says as much in in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 9. He says, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Time and time again in Paul's defense of his apostleship and his authority. He goes back to that Damascus Road experience. Where the Lord Jesus himself comes and commissions him. And says, Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That is my church. And then he commissions them to be to testify of the gospel. But he also says prophets here. I think he's talking about the prophets of the Old Testament here. Every time the word prophet is used, except in 1 Corinthians, every time the word prophet is used in the epistles, it's speaking pretty clearly about the Old Testament prophets. And I think while there are gifts of prophecy in this day and age, I think what he's speaking about here is the Old Testament prophets. So here we have this, uh, Quinn's smiling because I, just yesterday, I was like, actually, I think he's talking about New Testament prophets. Let's see your smile, Quinn. But I changed overnight. I think he's talking about the foundation of the apostles and prophets, because that's kind of what he's getting at in chapter 2 and chapter 3, that that here's the foundation, here's the authority of what everything else is grounded. And then look, he moves to evangelists. You see what he's doing there? The foundations of Christ, as he gets at uh, earlier in in the book, of the apostles and prophets, 
And now he gifts his church with evangelists, those who go out and evangelize, those who proclaim, herald the good news of Christ, that Christ has come, he's come for sinners. So if you are not yet a Christian here and you're here, I'm so glad you're here. I'm evangelizing to you right now. I'm pleading with you to turn from your sins and come to the foot of the cross and realize that Christ has came for sinners. He's came to seek and save the lost. And without Christ, you have no answer before God on the day of judgment. Because God is good, he will uphold his goodness just as good judges do. And he will judge sinners. So turn from your sin. Come to Christ. Acknowledge him as Lord and Savior. And he will save you. You will find a gentle and kind Savior in Jesus Christ. So what I just did was evangelize. I heralded the good news of Christ. That's what Andrew prayed for in, in his pastoral prayer for Tunisia. To have many more men and women go and to proclaim the good news. And this summer we're going to have send out a bunch of college students to go to places in Central Asia, in South Asia, and the Middle East to herald the good news. Because in many of those places, there's very little Christian witness. And so on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, evangelists that go out and they herald this good news. And then you have this third category, which I think is meant to be read together, these shepherd teachers. These shepherd teachers. So you have the foundation of Christ, the cornerstone. Then on top of that, you have the apostles and prophets. And then you have those who herald the good news, which is made clear in the apostles and prophets. And you have the people, once people receive this good news, they believe it. They shepherd them along in their lives. And they continue to teach them sound doctrine. And this is all God's doing. God is the one who did this. So I can say with complete authority, it sounds a little weird, but it's true. God has, in a sense, gifted you, church, with your pastors. Matt, Andrew, Philip, and myself are our gift to you, not because we're special in ourselves. Oh, please don't hear me say that. But because God, in his divine providence, gifts his church. So Acts chapter 20, verse 28 When Paul is speaking to the Ephesian elders before he leaves, he says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. The Holy Spirit has made you elders to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Pastors are gifts to the church because they're given to the church by God. And as God's providence, our church, because we are a congregationally ruled church, believe in the priesthood of all believers. And one of the ways that we, we, we carry that out is by making sure every member understands their process and calling elders. You can look at Matthew 16 and 18 for, for more of this. But in a sense, church, you have the authority to call your pastors and elders. And that's what you've done. So in in two weeks, we're going to vote on on Jeff Chang as one of the pastors of this church. We're going to exercise our authority to do that. Because we're all in a sense saying that we think Jeff 
is called by God to serve in this church as one to shepherd, to care for our souls, and one to teach us sound doctrine. It's the role of a pastor. Colin Marshall, in his book, The Trellis and the Vine, he says this about the role of shepherd teachers, pastors, elders. His task is to teach and to train the congregation by his word and his life to become disciple-making disciples of Jesus. So my, the top of my job description, top of Philip's job description, and, and Matt and Andrew as well, though not as much at the top of their description for sure, but just less time because they also have jobs in the secular world. The top of our job description should be to help the saints of Warnell to become disciple-making disciples. To help the saints of Warnell become disciple-making disciples. And we do this mainly, first and foremost, by imparting sound doctrine. In his book, again, Colin Marshall says, The heart of training is not to impart a skill, but to impart sound doctrine. That's what our aim is. We are trying to impart sound doctrine. And so, church, when we are praying for more deacons to come and deacon or serve our church, we're doing that with an eye toward freeing up myself and Philip and Matt and Andrew, Lord willing, Jeff, and whoever else the Lord will call to be elders of this church so that we might continue to impart sound doctrine to the church. And once this sound doctrine is imparted, once we continue to teach and to serve the church by teaching, then the apostle moves on to three effects of this or three outcomes of this teaching. Look at the first one, to equip the saints. To equip the saints. Now, you only need to be equipped if you're what? Unequipped or ill-equipped. You only need equipping if there's something lacking. So, for instance, in seminary, I had three jobs at one point. One of those jobs was at Caribou Coffee. I was thoroughly ill-equipped to make a latte. I did not like coffee. My favorite drink eventually um, was a, a white berry iced mocha with like two espresso shots in there. And a lot of white mocha and a lot of cherry syrup, wherever that came from. So I had no idea what I was doing when they were asking me to pull espresso. I even thought the word espresso was actually what? Expresso. Maybe some of you think that now. I thought it needed to be espresso because when you needed espresso, you need to get somewhere fast. Like express mail to the post office. I was so ill-equipped as a barista. It was ridiculous. They were just looking for warm bodies. Well, finally, over time, my manager, Diane, she, she equipped me to do the work of a barista. And I became the most average barista you've ever seen. <laughs> but I was way better than I used to be. I finally knew what it meant to pull some espresso shots. So when Paul's using this word equipped, it's okay, it's humble, it's right to say, huh, 
I guess I need some equipping. So Christian, you need equipping because you need to know more about Christ. More about his prophecies, his character, his sacrifice, his promises, his love for you, his love for all the saints, his glory. And when you're equipped, you can what? Do the work of ministry or do the work of service. That's the logical outcome of being equipped. Now you're equipped, you can get to work. You can do the work of the ministry. And then... Once you do the work of the ministry, the body of Christ is built up. You see that there in verse 11. So the pattern is here. You get equipped, you get to work, and the body is built up. The body is built up. Now, Paul keeps using this imagery in Ephesians and other places of of the church of, of body and building. So for a body to work properly, you know, the arm can't say to the leg... You are worthless and I'm more important than you. That's not how a body will work. I mean, just think the last time you stubbed your toe, right? Your whole body was aware of what just happened. Or parents, if you stepped on a G.I. Joe or Lego, right? You have a whole body reaction to that. That's a good imagery to keep in mind here. And on the building side of things, think of what, what, what a good building is for. A good building is is usable, it serves function, it protects us from the rain, from the sun, it keeps out intruders. It's also strong. A good building is strong. When uh, strong winds come, it just doesn't topple over. And a good building is also attractive. There's something about making a building look nice that is good and okay. And so Paul's using this imagery to look at the church. So to Warnell Road, look at what's happening around you. Look how God is not building this material building, but building this body of believers together. Lord, is, in so many ways, the Lord is building up this body as the saints are equipped for the work of service. So that is the work of ministry for the building up of Christ. I just consider the ways that God has served this church with Grace Sutton and Isabel Ogilvie have cleaned out the kitchen recently. Lorna Ogilvie and Philip purged various items that have been sitting around for who knows how long. Art, Kathleen, Connor, Joshua, Ely, and others have taken care of the Jefferson's lawn. Amanda Sanders made tons of food and hosted a get-to-know-you-for-the-Van-Steenbergs a couple months ago. For many months, Emily Stahl took groceries to dear sister Cynthia. Barb and Steve Burton have cared for Cynthia over the years. The Ogilvies and the Hermans have provided rides for people. The Hankies have kept the grounds clean, even though he's no, they're no, he's no longer the deacon of grounds. Dalton and Megan have helped set up the Lord's Supper. Ruth Hurst helped us with our key fobs and all the various passwords we had. Randy Howell has helped us with our newsletter and our bulletin. Josiah set up the baptismal. Adam Seaver has been overseeing and done a great job of hospitality. Quinn, Imogene, Grace, and Amanda are working for this 100th year celebration. And those are just physical ways of service. Think about all the good conversations you've had with people. Think about how people have been so helped when they've had a baby or they've had a need by all the meal trains that are set up. Think about the times we've sung Songs with deep doctrinal teaching. 
Think about the way that Quinn and Kyle and Ann help us in that area. Think about the way that our sister Lindsay Parker hosts so many people, particularly women in her house, and counsels them and cares for them. Consider the regular giving of this church so that you guys are saying, we want to keep meeting in this building and we want to pay particularly Mark and Philip to be able to not have secular jobs in order to continue to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. God is building up this church. He is equipping you all continually, particularly through the foundation of the apostles and prophets, sending out evangelists and calling out shepherds and teachers in order to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And our job, let me speak for a moment to to Matt, Andrew, and to Philip, myself, to Jeff, eventually. We are training people in this work to be contributors and servants. Not consumers, not spectators, but our desire should be in line with the desire of Christ, brothers, to equip the saints to give of themselves for the work of the ministry, to contribute to the needs of the saints, to serve other saints in Warnell Road, not to sit back and to be spectators and consumers. Now, if you're new to our church, I know that you wouldn't never say probably that you go to church in order to be a consumer, to be a spectator. No one kind of just signs up and say, I want to do that. There's something in this that just kind of tells us that's probably not what church is for, but I wonder, and if your own church background, if a way you are expecting something from the church that Christ isn't expecting the shepherds, teachers to provide for the church. The role of the pastor teacher is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And in our specific church, we have very little programs. Because all of the things I mentioned are either from a diaconate office or they're just organic. Because you know what? Christians begin to love each other. They begin to sense needs. And out of desire to glorify God and to love their neighbor, particular church member, they just do it. There's no program for so many of the things I just mentioned. Our church is growing into one another, into a building for the Lord because they see needs and they feel needs. You see, a need doesn't have to come through the church office and we have to go find someone to fill that need. You see, the more Philip and I are doing that, the less we are teaching sound doctrine and praying for the saints and caring for the saints. The more we are administrators. There's always administration to do in any job. We get that. But I just want to say thank you, World Road. Thank you for having this desire and increasing in your desire to see the role of your pastors to equip the saints for the work of ministry. You see, what we do is more osmosis than formal. And that's a good thing. And then, as we begin to conclude here, the goal of this, and we'll talk more about this in the coming weeks, verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and by craftiness and deceitful schemes. How are you tossed around in the waves of this world? Well, Paul says, at least 
It starts with hearing every wind of doctrine. So what combat, what combats every wind of doctrine? Sound doctrine. Who gives you sound doctrine? Other saints for sure, but especially the shepherd teacher. You see, there's a danger in undermining the role of shepherd teacher. When I say undermine, I mean the actual use of that word, not like I did last week. For some of you who called me out on that, thank you for that. You see, there's a danger in undermining the role of shepherd teacher. You're neglecting to see how God has gifted the church. So many will say, I want to be mature in Christ, yet they won't see how God has laid laid this out in his word. That the main ordained means that this has happened is by establishing shepherd teachers who are established on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So if you're being tossed to and fro this week, if you're feeling feeble in your faith, if you are entertained by every one of doctrine, prosperity doctrine, the therapeutic doctrine, the theological liberalism, know that you are in a church that has gifted you with shepherd teachers and saints that are equipped also to help you not be tossed around so much by every wind of doctrine and by the schemes of the evil one. What a gift it is to be a part of this church. Church, if, you, if you're feeling hesitant to reach out to help, if you feel like you're being tossed to and fro, you're not alone. I felt tossed to and fro so many times the last couple of years. But God has gifted this church with saints and shepherd teachers who are willing and have a joyful desire to care for your soul by opening and explaining and praying his word. This will build you up. This will build all of us up into maturity and to the fullness of Christ until the day we are in the Lord's presence and what we know in part will be fully known. This is God's plan to care for us in this world so that we make it to the next. And in verses 15 and 16, Here's the antidote to being tossed to and fro. This is for all the saints. This is why I think when he's talking about gifts, he's not just speaking about the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. Because he said, each one of us, remember that in verse 7? And each one of us should do this. Look at verse 15. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into every way, into him who is the head, into Christ. From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint... With which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So we're about to vote in 19 new members, Lord willing, tonight. So just a word to Eli, Bill, Mary, Daniel, Rosie, Rhett, Sarah, Chandler, Iman, Aaron, David, Hunter, Logan, John, Marissa, Andrew, Kelly, Joseph, and Isabel. Lean in quickly to this church. You will find a group of saints who long to care for you and to serve. And come as contributors, not mere spectators, not mere consumers. To those who are already members, receive these brothers and sisters with glad hearts. Invite them over to your home. Open up your doors. Invite them over. The Lord will be glorified and the church will be built up in this. And know, as we conclude here, know continually that we were all once held captive by Satan. And now Christ has redeemed us and taken us captive for himself. And if we have this idea 
that we were founded on grace and we are sustained by grace. And we have this idea we will be able to be charitable with one another and continue to be built up. I conclude with this quote from John Newton. That if each one of us had, we'd be able to look at each other and appreciate the gifts that God has given each one of us. John Newton says that I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Let's look around at our brothers and sisters with grace and charity remaining at the foot of the cross so that Christ will get the glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for each one of us. We thank you that your redeeming grace has been given to us. And we thank you that we are your beloved children and no longer children of wrath. Would you build our church up in unity as we all do the work of the ministry? Lord, we pray that you continue to help Matt, Andrew, myself, and Philip to equip the saints with sound doctrine so that the saints may equip one another with sound doctrine and that we may not be led astray by the cunning schemes of the evil one, by every wind of false doctrine that is so poisonous to your church body. Protect our church. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. A church, as is custom, and go ahead and invite Matt and uh, Andrew to come up. As is custom in our church on the first Sunday of the week, of the month, we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. What a wonderful text to preach and then church for us to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. We do this for four reasons, primarily. One, we're commanded to do so by our Lord. He said for us to do this in remembrance of him. He reminded us that the bread is symbolizing his body and that the cup is symbolizing his blood. Secondly, we do this so that our affections might be stirred up by these visible signs to invisible realities. We can't see that we've been washed by the blood of Christ. We can't see that Christ's body has been given over for us. But in the bread and in the cup, we're able to have our affections stirred up to those realities. Thirdly, we're reminded already that the Lord has already done this for us. He has already purchased us by his blood. His promises are sealed in us through the giving of his Holy Spirit. So when we eat the, cup, the bread and drink the cup, we're proclaiming what already has happened to us. His body has been broken for us. His blood has been spilled for us. And fourthly, we take, hope of the, we take hold of the hope that one day we will feast around the table of the king, as we're going to sing about in our song. This is a small, small foretaste of that great banquet feast when all Christians throughout history will be united around the table of the king. A reminder at our church, we wish that anyone who has been baptized as a believer to come forward. So if you're not a member of our church and you're in good standing as a member of another church and you've been baptized as a believer, we invite you to come forward. If you are not yet a Christian, you've not followed the Lord in obedience by being baptized, we 
we kindly ask that you remain seated and consider the lordship of Jesus and how he has told all who hear his voice to repent, believe, and be baptized in his name. 